You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash Ellison Center. Today's speaker is uh, Professor William Hill, who is Professor Emeritus of National Security Strategy at the National War College in Washington, D.C., and a Global Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center. He is a retired Foreign Service officer who served in various posts in Europe, uh, including also in the Department of State and the Department of Defense, and as part of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, where, among other things, he was the head of the OSCE mission to Moldova, where he was charged with negotiation of a political settlement to the Transnistrian conflict. And I'm sure there are various other exploits in his background uh, that he might want to talk about, especially <laughs> if you ask him about it. But for the most part, he will be speaking about his new book, which is called No Place for Russia. Uh, so we'll be speaking for Pass around, look uh, at it. 30 to 40 minutes, and then uh, we'll open it up for questions. Uh, so um, please join me in welcoming Professor Hill. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks, thanks, Scott. Uh, thank, uh, my thanks to the Ellison Institute, to you, Scott, and colleagues who have made it possible uh, for me to have this forum today and tomorrow. Um, I've been working with Russia for a long time. Uh, I started as an academic, uh, then joined the State Department Foreign Service, uh, and also served in the Voice of America and in the Department of Defense. When I left the State Department, I then served 10 years back in academia, sort of, but government academia as a professor at the National War College. Um, and now I still work in Washington, D.C., at the Kennan Institute and do odd jobs for various people that still ask. Um, I actually, yeah, this, I'm actually, when I think about it, I am ancient now that, or more ancient, but I started working with Russia, first came to Russia in August of 1971. I arrived at Leningrad State University uh, as a American graduate student on the official exchange with the USSR at the same time that as an undergraduate, young and undergraduate Russian arrived there by the name of Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. <laughs> I, I didn't know him at the time. It took, I met him 20 years later. He wasn't president yet then. But uh, I've been going back to Russia and working with Russia off and on for, yeah, now it's almost 50 years since then. Um, and the basic question that this book no Place for Russia addresses comes out of my personal experience uh, of the last 30 years or so. And it's an experience that many of my colleagues in the United States government and in academia, in public life in the United States, have had over the, the past three decades. I mean, it starts off on November 9th, 1989, I was chief of the European Division and the Voice of America, and I had a really nice office in Washington, D.C., looking out at the Air and Space Building, and it was a Thursday evening, and I was working late. I had a television in my office, and I was, yeah, as usual, on without the sound. 
I'm reviewing reports, and I look up, and there's Tom Brokaw, when behind him is a picture of the Berlin Wall with Germans climbing over it. And so turned up the sound and looked at it, and my god, I, I mean, you know, the division of Europe, or the division of Germany at least, is over. Uh, it, it, it really seemed that way. I mean, things had been going on all year, building up to this, and things continued after that. Uh, but on, you know, the next day, November 10th, you, you really had the sense that it, it rarely happens. But this was, you know, the sun coming up on another world, a different world. Um, it, it was a world that was full of hope and possibilities. You know, personally, 25 years later, in February, March of 2014, after almost a decade of work, I'd been negotiating with the Russian Ministry of Defense for a long time, I was at the National War College, which is part of the American Department of Defense. I'd been, yeah, for a long time negotiating, trying to get a student exchange, student and faculty exchange, with our counterparts in the Russian Ministry of Defense. So it's the, the um, uh, Military Academy of the General Staff. And we finally reached agreement, and I was, within a month and a half, I was going to take a group of American military officers and go to the Russian Military Academy and be received there by students and faculty, and we were going to do this every year. And you know, then you, you know what happened with Ukraine. I mean, the Russians uh, invaded and annexed Crimea. War started in the Donbass. We cut off military to military conflicts. Um, and we haven't basically had anything more than rudimentary military to military conflicts with Russia since March of, 9, of 2014. Uh, and this exchange, this contact, it was cut off. And, and we're left with a yeah, world with that's divided, with Europe divided again. I mean, my experience and disappointment are not unique. Many of my colleagues share it. But the, the real question, when you, I look back at this uh, in 2014, when I started to write the book, was why, how did this happen? None of us, not the Russians, not the Americans, really wanted this. When we started out in 1989, 1991, we wanted to build a world without divisions, uh, and yet 25 years later, Europe was once again divided. Uh, now, I'll lay out the basic argument that I make in the book. It's going to be oversimplified because the, the book is 400 pages, as you can see, and that's hard to fit into even half an hour uh, or something. But my basic argument goes something like this. Uh, from 1989 through 2014, European and North American states and leaders maintained a policy that sought to integrate Russia into European and world institutions. We, we'd been divided in the Cold War. We wanted Russia to be a part uh, of the, the world and, and to, to have a cooperative world and European system. Yet these same leaders and same states during this same period took a series of decisions on security and defense policy. Some of these were related, some of these decisions were related, some not. But institutionally and structurally, they excluded Russia from key parts of the European Euro-Atlantic security order. In essence, given the manner and the scope of NATO and EU enlargement, we ended up with a Europe which had no place for Russia. It's outside 
NATO, outside the EU. Um, in this book, I argue that no single decision, at least as far as I can see it, there was no single decision that produced this result. Instead, indeed, there were a number of bad decisions made by all parties and all sides, but there were many other decisions and actions taken that seemed right and actually have given good results. Um, I would argue that the, the result that we ended up with, what I call a bad result, was to a great degree unintended. It was the result of unforeseen or unexpected consequences. And that the division of Europe that we have today was neither inevitable nor necessary. Now the narratives that have developed as, as since 2014, especially uh, as the rivalry has grown again between Russia and the U.S., uh, Russia argues that the U.S. used its economic and military power to extend its geopolitical influence and to maintain its hegemony over Europe and, and over the whole world. Uh, the U.S. argues that uh, Russia abandoned reform, abandoned democracy, and tried to restore its empire. Now, I don't absolve Russia for what I consider its considerable failings, but I also try to note our own mistakes. We essentially, we the United States and our allies, built a European security architecture that in essence excluded Russia from the most important parts of this architecture, and it was thus bound to fail. Now, as you look at this whole period, I think three fundamental geopolitical conditions or uh, decisions uh, dominate or, or are key to understanding the context uh, uh, against which the events from 1989 to 19 uh, or to 2014 develop. Uh, the, the first condition or decision as you were was basically the decision of the United States during the George H.W. Bush administration to stay in Europe and in staying Europe to keep NATO in existence. Now neither of these was inevitable. You remember the after World War I the United States left Europe, and we, we actually never took part in the League of Nations, the security organization that the American President Woodrow Wilson invented. After World War II, we stayed in Europe, uh, you know, heeding the lessons of post-World War I Europe. But when we came to 1988, 89, 90, you know, there was great talk in the United States about a peace dividend. No longer a Cold War, no need for military expenditures, no need to, you know, maintain the military structures that we had. There was a serious discussion over, you know, what our policy should be. <coughs> the, the Bush administration decided that American security was dependent to a great degree upon a stable Europe, and a stable Europe was dependent upon a U.S. political and military presence and participation. Uh, the second important factor in this period is the unification of Germany, which uh, returned to Europe the problem that it had had since 1871 of dealing with a strong, unified German state in the middle of Europe. Now, this had hardly caused Europe any problems since 1870. You only have the Franco-German War, World War I, World War II. Then during the Cold War, the, the Russians, the Soviets, started the joke and others took it up as we love Germany so much that we want two of them. 
Uh, a united Germany, it, it's tied in the European Union, but it's still more powerful than any of the other EU states. And Europe is still trying to, the EU is still trying to figure out what to do with Germany. It's now economic rather than military power it's dealing with. But the, the place of Germany vis-a-vis -vis the rest of Europe is, is an issue that returned in 1990, uh, and it's with us during this whole period. Finally, there's the collapse of the USSR, or better said, the Russian Empire, because they're really the same thing. The USSR, after the Bolshevik Revolution, it took, took them about five years to put the Russian Empire back together again, maybe a little longer because they, they took the Baltics and uh, Bessarabia only in 1940 as part of the, as, you know, part of the secret protocols to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, but it's basically the Russian Empire which the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire were barely 50% ethnic Russian, while uh, you know, present-day Russia is, I think now they, they're calling it 78% ethnic Russian. But it's a, a Russian state now and not a multinational empire. Uh, and the Russians are still dealing with this problem. They've got a bad case of post-imperial syndrome. Uh, they won't like me for saying that, or some of them acknowledge it, others do not. But it, it's, it's been a challenge for Russia figuring out, you know, now the, the new, reduced, different Russia, what's their place in Europe, what's their place in the world, and they're still dealing with this question today. Now, these fundamental conditions or developments are neither good nor bad. Uh, the Russians might complain a little bit about what's happened to them, but <clears throat> this is part of the background against which these events develop. Um, that from the late 1980s through the early 1990s, 1992, I date it, but you, you could go elsewise, there was that we were largely occupied, both we, the Americans, our European allies, and the Russians with ending the Cold War and starting to build institutions for the new order, post-Cold War order. We reached a number of arms control agreements with the Russians, INF, the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty, Open Skies, uh, start, um, and we also reached political agreements, results of the Helsinki Final Act, the Helsinki process, uh, having to do with uh, human rights, human contacts, democracy, rule of law. Uh, in many respects, in most respects, these, these agreements represent the culmination of this Helsinki process, the, uh, the, the first producing the Final Act in the middle of the 1970s. It's a realization and not an alteration or a compromise of Western goals and norms. And in this sense, it, it led a lot of people to look, you know, and uh, including when the Soviet Union fell apart, even President George H.W. Bush, to talk about how the U.S. won the Cold War rather than being cooperative effort between Gorbachev and, and Bush. Uh, the 1990s was generally a period uh, of building new institutions, building a new system of cooperative security in Europe. Um, and because relations between the US and Russia, between Russia and the West in general were good at that time, we often overlook that even then there were fundamental differences among us on how the European, the, the world order should be constructed. Gorbachev and Yeltsin and the Russians you know, uh, who followed Gorbachev, generally saw the Helsinki process, the, the Charter of Paris, and then the later the, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, 
the all-encompassing European security organization. They saw this as, as a logical replacement for all of the Cold War institutions, not just the Warsaw Pact, but also for NATO. And they assumed that, that Europe would be run by some sort of overall you know, universal European organization. They saw the OSCE much like a smaller European version of the United Nations and hoped that it would run much like the United Nations had run in 1990-91 when the US and the Soviet Union cooperated uh, in mounting the resistance and, and throwing Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait in the first Gulf War. The Eastern Europeans on the other hand, saw the CSCE's Charter of Paris and the, the, the OSCE as a way of liberating themselves from the Warsaw Pact and from Russia. And they even 1990-91-92, nations like Poland, Hungary, Czechia, Slovakia were already looking for ways to, to move towards the West and get away from Russia and be part of Western institutions. Um, the Western Europeans, the members of the European community, uh, at that time 12 members, uh, were fixated in, from 1989-90 on, on negotiating the Maastricht Treaty, which changed the European community, the European economic community, into the European Union as of 1992, and making Europe both deeper, as they called it, in other words, closer cooperation, more all-encompassing, starting the basis of the, you know, which was realized then in the early 2000s of a common European cur currency and, and erasing borders and, and dividing lines in Europe. Um, and, and then also making Europe, as they called it, wider by adding members to the European Union. They did this first in 1995, adding Austria, uh, Finland, and Sweden, and then the Big Bang in uh, 2004 when they added 10 members, including many uh, of, of the former Warsaw Pact states and three former you know, uh, republics, nations in the Baltics subject to Soviet rule. Meanwhile, Bush and Baker in the United States uh, wanted to keep NATO in existence and have NATO be the primary provider of hard military security to Europe but Bush and Baker promised Gorbachev that we would transform NATO, and we did between June of 1990 and November of 1991 from the London summit in 1990 to the Rome summit. NATO was changed from a primarily military, defensive military alliance into also a political organization that started to build structures to reach out uh, and develop liaison with their former fo foes of the War Warsaw Pact, uh, the, the North Atlantic Cooperation Council, uh, later becoming the European Euro-Atlantic Cooperation Council. Um, uh, in any case, our former foes became partners, and, and you really did get a different NATO. Now, there's a lot of yeah, there are many accusations today, in particular, especially from the Russian side, how Bush and the United States broke a promise to Russia made by Baker in February of 1990 that NATO would not expand, that NATO supposedly would not move more than, wouldn't move one inch to the east. Um, I'm very confident. Uh, I mean, I've talked with Baker and with Brent Scowcroft and with the American ambassador Jack Matlock at the time that this commitment had to do with NATO troops in West Germany 
and not with NATO membership as a whole. Uh, in any case, um, the the you know the 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 Bush administration did keep its promise to Gorbachev to transform NATO, uh, to to change it in at least in part. Not into not just a military, but also a political uh, organization, institution, and alter the relationship with Russia. Uh, but the thing you have to keep in mind about NATO expansion is that many of the Eastern European countries wanted to get away with Russia. And as early, I have a cartoon from 1991 that, that really sort of represent or really graphically represents the situation shows two groups of little boys on either side. One side, you can see the little boys, the leader of the little boys on the left has an, an American helmet on. You recognize the type. There's a French Foreign Legion cap, a German Stahlhelm, and others, a British helmet. You can tell they're the West. And then on the East, you can tell all of the little boys have on Hungarian, Romanian, Ukrainian peasant caps, and others. You know, they're, they're quite recognizable if you've lived there. And the American boy is telling to the Eastern boys, he says, you can't all be on our side. Somebody has to be the bad guy. <laughs> uh, they, they were already asking to join NATO at the time. And so from the very beginning, NATO and the West were faced with, with the, the dilemma that while the Russians wanted a cooperative, and we wanted a cooperative system in which the Russians would be, take an integral and important part, a lot of the, the folks, the countries that came out of the Russian world did not like and did not trust the Russians and wanted to get away from them. And so how do you square this circle? Well, we, we argued about a lot of this with the Russians during the 1990s. I mean, the, the, the relationship was cooperative, but it wasn't necessarily smooth in terms of competing visions of how Europe should be organized. By 1990, the American vision had gener 1999, the American vision had generally prepared, and the way we pre or prevailed, excuse me, the way we presented it was that Europe had a system of overlapping and interlocking security organizations: NATO, the European Union, uh, the OSCE, Council of Europe, a number of others, and they had different memberships and different tasks. Uh, but they basically cooperated with one another and it was all supposed to work together seamlessly to produce a Europe that was cooperative, united, and friendly. Uh, well, uh, to an extent, this worked. Uh, but the problem was that increasingly, as more and more members, more and more countries joined up to NATO and to the European Union, and Russia was not a member, you know, Russia did not, had less and less influence over decisions that were taken in NATO and the European Union, and the U.S. and our European partners took more and more important decisions in these organizations, which ended up with the Russians more and more left out. Now, the other thing about NATO, and the important thing about the Russian grievance against NATO, is not just that NATO got bigger, that it expanded, uh, but it also, its character changed, or its capabilities changed. The, the NATO that the Russians saw in 1990, when Baker supposedly made his promise, this was a NATO that was entirely defensive, devoted to static defense. NATO had no expeditionary capability. In fact, NATO had never fired a shot in anger until 19. You know, until much later, actually, because it wasn't NATO in the Gulf War. Um, uh, 
and it was the, the wars of the 1990s, especially the Balkan Wars, that started NATO on the, pa on the path of acting outside of its area, out of area, it's called. NATO, after various other institutions, the nascent European Union, an ad hoc contact group, uh, including the Russians, and then the United Nations, all proved incapable of stopping the wars in Bosnia and Croatia until NATO stepped in in 1994 and 1995, stopped the wars, and then provided the peacekeeping uh, operation. Then in 1999, the United States and its allies, over Russian objectives, objections, excuse me, took um, a decision inside NATO, not taking it to the UN, to go to war against Milosevic and Serbia, Montenegro, uh, to protect ethnic Albanians in Kosovo. Um, and it was especially this war against Serbia in 1999 that aggravated the Russians and worried them uh, more than the fact that NATO expanded in 1997, uh, took a decision in 1997 to include Hungary, the Czech Republic, and Poland, uh, and even the second NATO expansion in 2002-2004, uh, because NATO it, it, especially in the second war against, in the, the war against Serbia Montenegro in 99, showed an ability to move military and conduct military operations, offensive military operations, outside its borders. Then NATO got involved in, along with the United States in the war in Afghanistan in the mid-2000s, and then conducted a campaign against Gaddafi in Libya in 2011. And, and by, if you look at NATO decisions and NATO doctrine, uh, adopted 2006, 2008, 2010, NATO avowed that it had worldwide capabilities and worldwide responsibilities, which leads the Russians to look at it uh, and say, well, you know, if NATO can go to Serbia, Afghanistan, Libya could certainly come to Russia, parts of Russia, maybe even Moscow. Uh, who knows? But it, I think many of us in America, uh, in particular, don't appreciate the, the change in NATO, especially the development of this expeditionary, out-of-area military capability that makes NATO very different from the NATO that we started out with at the beginning of the post-Cold War era. Uh, the war against Serbia proved a, a, a really traumatic blow for U.S.-Russian relations, but they recovered under Putin. And in, in Putin's first administration, the Russians went a long way to try to repair relations with the United States and with NATO. Famously, Putin was the first foreign leader to call Bush after 9-11. Um, uh, uh, they facilitated our, operate, our access to Afghanistan through Central Asia. Um, and they did a number of other things. And they were met, in turn, by the US pulling out of the ABM Treaty uh, in uh, 2002 with US uh, refusal to acknowledge uh, their fight against the Chechen rebels uh, in the North Caucasus as an anti-terrorist operation, um, and a number of other things that, that, that aggrieved Putin. But most of all, it was the increasingly ideological character 
of the U.S. administration under George W. Bush, the democracy promotion uh, that aggravated and worried the Russians. And this tendency uh, of the Bush administration, uh, along with a, a Russian insistence upon a, a, a privileged sphere of influence, sphere of interest uh, in the former states, former republics of the Soviet Union, uh, it was where we really came upon a collision course. Uh, the Russians didn't like our democracy promotion in general. They really didn't like it when we started doing pr democracy promotion in places like Georgia, Ukraine, elsewhere in the former Soviet Union, uh, and supporting so-called color revolutions against existing regimes there. Russians looked at it and started to talk and say, well, where are they going to do another color revolution? In Moscow? Um, Russia's retreat at the same time, starting with, especially with Putin's second administration, Russia's domestic retreat from a competitive political system and an open media provoked Western criticism. Uh, and even if you think this criticism was justified, and in many cases it, it probably was, it exacerbated Russian suspicion of and fear of the West. By 2006, Russia has paid off its foreign debt. It's making tons of money. The economy is booming from oil money. Uh, and as one Russian, famous Russian analyst, Dmitry Trenin says, Russia left the West. You know, basically increasing the Russia's frustrated with the West. This boils over with Putin's famous speech in Munich of February 2007, where he accuses the U.S. of trying unilaterally to run the world, to run Europe and run the world. I mean, Russia was aggrieved by many things. We, we failed to ratify an adopted treaty on armed, conventional arms in Europe, which would have included the three Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, where NATO, now they were in NATO since 2004, and NATO's military presence there was unlimited. Uh, unilateral Western recognition of Kosovo, which again, we just decided in the EU and NATO without taking it to the UN, and we rewrote the conditions of a UN resolution that ended the war of 1999 against Serbia uh, over Russian objectives. And finally, you get to the April 2008 uh, Bucharest summit, where Ukraine and, and uh, Georgia are pushing for a membership action plan for the first step towards becoming a member of NATO. Uh, the US, France, and Germany were invite, invited or divided on this, but the, the uh, so NATO wasn't able to agree on an invitation to either of these states, but NATO came up with a compromise that was probably worse than one action or the other, which was to state, well, while they were not going to do anything, at this time, at some time, at some point, NATO or Ukraine and Georgia would be members of NATO. Sort of like holding a sign up to Putin, you better invade now before you know, they get on a membership action plan. Uh, well, they did. The Russians did invade in August of Georgia in August of uh, 2008. Uh, it's complicated. The Georgians bear considerable fault in the start of this war. The Russians set a trap for them and they fell into it. Uh, but um, it was also Russia's answer to the West. Uh, the Obama administration then, starting 2009, tried to reset relations with Russia. 
famous reset button, where if you read the Russian, it says it actually, Piergruska uh, means overload, it's Piergruska if you want to say reset, but uh, worked for a while, gave some good results, but really the, the NATO intervention in 2011 was what really, it was really a dividing line for Putin. Uh, Medvedev, at Medvedev's assistance, Med, Putin let Medvedev, who was at that time president for four years between 08 and 2012, Medvedev abstained on a UN resolution about defense of civilians, of civilian population in Benghazi. NATO used the, the UN resolution to do regime change, removed uh, Gaddafi, and Gaddafi was later killed by rebels. Um, and the Russians still point to the mess in Libya and say, see, this is what happens when the U.S. goes in for regime change. You go in and break things, and then you leave everything broken, and the rest of the world then has to fix it. And it was this many of us believe was instrumental in Putin deciding to come back to the presidency uh, and then in subsequent developments of Russian policy that are far more nationalistic, far more focused on development of Russia's Eurasian sphere of influence and far less cooperative and friendly towards the West. Uh, now, cooperation did continue for quite some time during this whole period, even though Putin was critical of the West, and we were critical of Putin when he was reelected, both of the legislative elections in December of 2011 and the presidential elections in March of 2012. But NATO-Russia cooperation, a, a really robust set of exercises. We had joint exercises with the Russian in, Russians even in 2013, and we were planning them in 2014 when Ukraine happened. But the relations were getting tenser and tenser, and it was basically an accident looking to happen. And, you know, the, the accident was provoked not by NATO expansion, but by a closer European Union uh, relationship with Ukraine, where the EU is pushing for uh, an association agreement with Ukraine. Ukraine's ready to sign. And a couple of months before this is supposed to happen, uh, Putin meets with a former head of the European Commission, Romano Prodi of uh, Italy, at an annual gathering in Russia, it's, it, the, Putin's remarks are on record because it's a remarkable warning that I cite in the book. Putin says to Prodi, says to the world, basically says, look, I know that Ukraine's an independent country. I understand that Ukraine has the result to ally or take any decision to, to build relations with anyone it wants, but Russia has important interests in Ukraine. And if Ukraine does this with the European Union, Russia will have to take action. And indeed they did. Uh, the Russians called President Yanukovych to Moscow. They said, don't sign with the EU. Offered him $15 billion in aid, which he was going to take. He went back to Ukraine, said he was going to postpone signing the agreement with the EU. Demonstrators came out in the streets, and one thing led to another. Unlike previous President Kuchma, Yanukovych, I believe, was foolish enough to listen to Russians telling him to disperse the demonstrators. They were just about ready to go home from the cold anyway, and, but they used military force and police force against them. The demonstrators resisted. It led eventually, February of 2014, to Yanukovych's fall, the installation of a provisional, provisional government from the parliament, pro-Western parliament um, in Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Crimea, and uh, the end of the cooperative relationship. Uh, by September of 2014, we had the NATO summit at Wales, which the decision taken there returns to calling Russia a threat 
to European security and emphasizes NATO's original purpose, collective defense of the territory of the member states. It, this, I really see, is the end of the 25-year post-Cold War period of efforts trying to integrate Russia into European and world institutions. And that really it hasn't been our policy, really, since that time. Other factors have also challenged the European and world order uh, that was founded <laughs> at the end of the Cold War in 1989 and the years immediately after. In 2015, Europe was really shaken by the refugee crisis out of Syria and the concomitant populism, right-wing populism, that's still you know, giving Europe troubles. The ongoing crisis with the euro and economic difficulties within Europe augmented the populist uh, disturbance. And then Brexit in 2016, you know, losing an important member of the EU. The U.S. took a little bit longer to get there, but by 2017, installed as president, Donald Trump starts calling into question the U.S. commitment to NATO and to Europe. And will the U.S. come home? Well, the Europeans don't know anymore. Uh, all, all, most of the career people in the government favor staying in Europe, staying committed to NATO. But is this Trump administration policy? No one's really sure. Russia, for its part, uh, mounts information campaigns. The most famous one is the one in our campaign of 2016, but it's by far from being the only one. They were active in Britain. They are active in other parts of Europe. Uh, I mean, all you have to do is read the press and, and look, and you can see Russia pushing the line, challenging various elements of this post-Cold War order, uh, trying push, pushing for different arrangements and pushing uh, for dis, you know, for disaggregation of the Western alliance uh, and a new system. There's a widespread perception now on both sides, in the West and in Russia, that the other side is an overriding security threat. Europe is once again divided into two real, really often bitterly opposing camps with an increased danger of military confrontation. Probably not as big as it was in the Cold War, but it depends on where you're talking about. And up in the Baltics and in a couple southeastern Europe, there are some real danger areas. With the U.S. withdrawal from the INF and the dubious future of both the Open Skies Treaty and New START next year, we're also losing the security and arms control framework which we fashioned in the late 80s and early 90s at the end of the Cold War. And we may be entering an era with a new and uncontrolled great power arms race with China thrown into the mix. Uh, not, a really, uh, uh, not, not a really comforting possibility. So what do we do now, if I'm right, or even if I'm wrong, but you know, especially if I'm right, <laughs> Uh, well, I, I think, you know, we, we need the, the Russian invasion and especially the annexation of Crimea. This is the first time since 1939 that one European state has annexed through military action a part of another state. We agreed solemnly in 1975 that no European state would ever do that again. Does this rule, do these commitments still hold? We, we really need a new understanding, both among ourselves the U.S. and its allies, and with Russia. 
over what the basic rules of the road, the structure and the rules of, of the security order in Europe and the world should be. Doesn't mean we have to throw out all the stuff we did between 1945 and uh, 1992, but there's probably a lot of stuff we're going to need to revisit and say, you know, is this still good? Do you, and, you know, given what's happened, do you still think this? Secondly, American decline, or you know, America coming home, America first, whatever. The U.S. is not, in my view, a declining power. What's happened is other countries have gotten wealthier and more powerful. So unlike at the end of World War II or at the end of the Cold War, the U.S. is no longer much wealthier and stronger than other major powers. So we need to focus more, along with our like-minded allies and like-minded states, on preserving and continuing those parts of the rules-based, what we call the rules-based international order that we think are most vital to our own interest. Uh, and push this, uh, it, it will require some strategic discrimination and decisions. Uh, though those parts of the order which we think are most important to American security, American well-being. With Russia, Given the state of the relationship, I think for the time being, we're going to be able, and we need to focus first and foremost on the common, our, what I call existential common interests. These are things like nuclear arms control, non-proliferation of WMD, and climate change. Russia, for its part, needs to understand and acknowledge the consequences of its positions and its actions over the past 10 to 15 years. Invasions of neighbors, annexation of, uh, of territory, extraterritorial killings using you know, WMD in some cases uh, on territory of other states. Uh, the two cases, Litvinenko and Skripal in, in Great Britain are not the only ones. Um, overall, we need to, I think, have less ambition to change the domestic systems and practices of other countries. Um, this doesn't mean that we need to abandon all criticism of other countries like Russia or China based on their divergence and their behavior from what we consider common or general human values. The criticism, I think, we, we need to preserve our values in the sense of holding up the divergences of their behavior from these values, but I think we need to have less involvement inside, try to have, or we need to avoid trying to have involvement inside these countries of actually changing their behavior and have to leave that to their own citizens. Rather, in terms of preservation and promotion of our values, I think at this point in our history, more it's more appropriate and more necessary to have a rededication to affirming and living up to our own ideals in our domestic affairs. If we do this, if we live up in how we conduct our own politics, our own economy, and our own society, if we live up to our stated ideals in that, we will promote these ideals through example rather than instruction. And that's where I come down right now. That's my hope as we look ahead. So thanks for listening. I would love to hear questions, comments, or objections. Thank you.